You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So if you've got a mother who's anything like my mother, then occasionally she sends you things via email. She'll cut out an article or a recipe or, I don't know, something that she thinks that you should see. It's generally not jokes. My stepfather sends jokes, but men send jokes. Women send literature. So my mother... um in the last couple of weeks, sent me a column by a woman named Sally Friedman. She writes for The Inquirer as well as other places. And Sally, I know, I feel like I know Sally because I went to college with one of Sally's daughters and Sally has just, she's been writing for a long, long time. But this particular column really said something to my mother. And so I just want to read you a little bit about it. She starts by saying... You'll never see me shopping for faux Danish modern furniture or checking out flea markets for kitschy 1950s memorabilia. I have to roll my eyes when I see people drool over West Elm catalogs filled with shag rugs and streamlined sofas. That's because I'm no fan of mid-century chic. I had enough of the 50s in the 50s. In the 50s, young women still lived in their parents' homes because going away to college was the exception, not the rule, at least in my middle-class Jewish experience. In the 50s, girls like me got a teaching degree because our mothers told us teaching was something you could always fall back on. In the 50s, the second commandment, actually even more important than the first, was to get a husband, preferably one with what our mothers called a good future. Just what that meant was imprecise. And she goes on and on and on until she says, you know, it sounds almost medieval. And and she's right. Things have changed. My mother circulated this not only to her daughter, but to her granddaughters, who were just shocked by the way that things have changed. And I was thinking about it because among the women that we have to thank for the fact that things have changed are people like Gloria Steinem, which is one of the reasons that I was so excited to have the opportunity to sit down and chat with Gloria, who you all know as the amazing founder of Ms. Magazine, who is still shaking things up with her unabashed opinions today. I was invited to an event called Winning Plays, Black Women, Feminism and Empowerment that was organized by Stacey Tisdale, who is a fellow personal finance nerd like me. Uh, she had Gloria on her panel. I was able to grab a few minutes with both of them. And so I wanted to share it with all of you here on Her Money. Take a listen. 
So we are at the Paley Center for a wonderful event called Winning Plays, Black Women, Feminism, and Empowerment with Stacey Tisdale and Gloria Steinem. And thanks for having us here. Thank you for inviting us and for helping us share this message. We really appreciate it. Well, I think it's an important one to share with all the people that are streaming in downstairs. Gloria, let me start with you. You have been doing what you do for such a long time. To me, feminism is as much a financial issue as it is anything else. How do you see it these days and how far do you think we've come? Well, that's a big question. I mean, <laughs> um, I think before we get to financial, we have to get to reproductive because the desire to control reproduction and determine how many kids and what race, what caste, what class or whatever. Uh, you, some people call it patriarchy. Some people call it androcentric systems, whatever, is the first step in pretty much every hierarchy. And that is redoubled if there's racism because then the control of women, whatever their race, in order to keep races separate, redoubles and affects women differently, but affects all women badly. <laughs> so the racism and sexism are just very deeply intertwined and they can't be changed except together. Well, and we're at the latest of a stream of uncomfortable tipping points and pauses and wondering what's going to happen tomorrow. As you read the tea leaves, how does everything change if Planned Parenthood does get defunded? Well, we are not going to obey the law. We are going to deduct the money from our income tax and send it to Planned Parenthood anyway and tell the IRS to come get us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But we hope we don't have to do that because the vast majority of Americans believe that it is up to the individual to decide when and whether to have children, not the government. So I hope and believe that we can continue on this path towards reproductive freedom, reproductive justice, which is a fundamental human right. Women and men have the right to decide what happens to our bodies. Absolutely. Not the government. It has to be us. I read an interview that the two of you did together in Black Enterprise. Stacy was the interviewer. And you equated being able to support yourself with buying freedom. And I got to tell you, Stacey, I mean, that really resonated with me. I got divorced about 12 years ago. I didn't do it until I felt like I could truly support myself. And I think there are a lot of women in that situation. What made you sort of draw well, that's, that out? That's what Stacey's work is so important because she really is, you know, the greatest explainer of economic independence <laughs> I know. Right. I think uh, we kind of have to put money into context and what it's just been my observation as a financial journalist for a long time that um, money's greatest gift is that it really reflects back to you where you might not be living in step with your values. So for women, what just what I noticed was that, you know, there's, you know, some real issues out there. Like we talk about the pay gap all the time, 77 cents for every dollar a man earns for black women, that's 64 cents. But what was interesting is um, we all, sometimes we have to ask ourselves, why do we fit the profile? What do you mean? 
A great example, a friend of mine is the head of wealth management at a big financial company. And she had two people looking for jobs come from Harvard University. One was a, a man and one was a woman. And she said it was so funny how they were the exact same person on paper. Mm-hmm. And when it came down to talking money, the gentleman was very specific about what he wanted. And the woman kind of said that, whatever you guys have in mind. And I think it's in um, a woman's nature to take something small and make something big out of it. And I think we have to be aware of that tendency. And there's so much that women shine at. I mean, there's so much that we are, that there's, you know, nothing that can be done like a woman does it. And, you know, really stepping into that power, being who we are and being aware of ways in which we might not value ourselves and really, you know, stepping out of those social stereotypes. You're talking about asking for what we believe, what we know that we deserve. It's, it's, it's a fine line. Yes, there's a lot of that asking for. A lot of it's um, not conditioning. But there's a lot of things that, I, do, I, for example, I would just do without necessarily even being concerned about putting a price tag on it. For example? For example, the preparation for this event. It was, you know, just doing whatever it takes regardless. And I think that's um, in a woman's nature. And we each have our own vision of what we want our lives to look like. And the goal of my work is to make sure that we align our resources to support that vision. You don't want to undersell yourself. You don't want to get too concerned about money. I had a different experience um, in divorce in terms of I um, wanted to make a change. And, and I had a very, very amicable divorce. And I did I, too, I, by know, the way. I know, I know you did. <laughs> I, I know Jean, she's wonderful. She's awesome. And um, uh, knowing that um, money could possibly be a point where we would get hung up, just choosing to let it go, mm-hmm. to just completely let it go and knowing the bigger truth that, you know, this person that I've been married to would never let myself or his child suffer and just kind of trusting that bigger truth and not worrying about so much the details, which is very important for women to know that they can create financial security. But especially I know a lot of people who are in not such terrific marriages because they don't feel that they can do that. And um, just wanting them to know that financial insecurity is one of the most challenging forms of anxiety to deal with. And it can be paralyzing and just let it be. Don't let it paralyze you. Absolutely. Let me just remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. That's why they sponsor this show, because they understand that we deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. And sometimes we need different strategies in order to do that. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find lots of conversations like this one. You'll find information about how to manage during life's biggest events and most challenging times. Again, the website is fidelity.com slash it's time. I was reading that you plan to live to be a hundred. Hundred and ten. We talked about this. No, 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 no. Uh, just no. to meet my current deadlines, I have to make <laughs> They do pile up, don't they? So what what do you tell women who ask you about 
getting out of their own way when it comes to achieving their deadlines mm-hmm. and their goals, financial and otherwise? Well, first of all, I don't tell women I listen to them because you don't know you're worth listening to unless someone listens. So that's number one. <laughs> uh, second, I suggest they reverse the golden rule and treat themselves as well as they treat others. And how have you done that in your own life? Uh, well, I, you know, I have to say it to myself, too. You, you it's know. hard. Yeah, because I also was raised with this, you know, I never saved any money until I was past 50. I, you know, I mean, so but I, I read used, that you I just used Stacy much earlier <laughs> in my life. <laughs> but I read that you just bought the third apartment in a in mm-hmm. the brownstone in yes, which Yes, and the you most live. remarkable thing about that is that I got a 30-year mortgage and I'm 83 years old. Well, that's... <laughs> So now we're way past the 110 mark. I'm there really you go. happy no, but to hear that. The reason, <laughs> that's but, but, here's, but the reason is because <laughs> we, we five of us, lucked into buying a brownstone because we had to or else we would have had to move out when the whole brownstone was $170,000. Okay. So I happen to have one floor that is now security for another floor, if you see what I mean. So I'm in deep debt. But I'm fine. It's, it's, um, it's, I love the 30 year mortgage. I do too. That's the best. We attach so much character to people's financial position. Like debt means you're an irresponsible person. Wealth means you're this type of person. And the point of what I try to do with my work is to kind of break those disassociations because as my mother used to always tell me, I didn't know I was poor until somebody told me I was when she was growing up. At some point, you realize that you're not all of your own doing. The sun rises without us having to do anything. Mm-hmm. We have ideas. We have creativity. We have our much greater strengths are in things like intuition. And it's um, money can really make you forget that you're born with a full ball of wax. So what I try to do with my work is to help people to remember their perfection and not let the ways, the things that we associate with money make us forget. Mm-hmm. And really, as I said, to use money for what it really is, it's a tremendous mirror to reflect back to you where you're living and where you're not living in step with your values. You're here tonight to talk specifically about black women. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk specifically about black women. How are you different? I don't think anybody's different. I think when we are all faced with certain challenges that I think, you know, however we're made up, you know, resilience is in that equation. Mm-hmm. And I think black women have been put in positions where that's what we're here tonight. They're a tremendous example of resilience. And the message, it's been interesting. Gloria and I have heard all sorts of comments this week. And um, the message isn't, you know, black women are this, they're different, they're supposed to be whatever. I'm hoping that people see the story of black women reminds them of the resilience that's in all of us. And black women, as we'll talk a lot about tonight, and we just mentioned earn 64 cents to every dollar the man makes. So what did... I think How a lot that of that play comes, out is they, you know, they're the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs. They made their own jobs. Right. But I, the small business owners who are women earn 25 cents to every dollar mm-hmm. that a male owned business owner earns. Mm-hmm. Right. And so a lot of that is mixed up together. Yeah. Right. It's the jobs that they're doing and the businesses that they're running in and the direction mm-hmm. that they're going into. Yeah. And I think, um, someone who you'll hear me speak about tonight. Maggie Lena Walker, who was the first woman bank president to charter a bank. 
1902. And I love her quote that black women must band together and use their might, their brains, and create work and businesses for themselves. I think all women must all band women. together. Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know, I, I am constantly dragging that Madeleine Albright quote about mm-hmm. a special place in hell for women who don't help other women out of the dust and using it. Because I it's do true, think but, it's but true. But it's not without qualification. I'm not helping Sarah Palin. Okay. I mean, the question is, it's a consciousness, not biology in the end, because the, the, it's not to get a job for one woman, it's to make life better for all women. Right. So it's understanding under- that they're the one thing that um, we have an opportunity to do because there has been a wave. You and I talked about this on the phone last week. There has been a wave of activism post election around women's equality. And I think we, it's imperative that we use it as an opportunity to realize that different women have different mm-hmm. journeys and well, that there's multi-dimensional you know, the aspect. The election, here. I mean, should have shown us that in my, in any way, in my life experience, it's been true that disproportionately African American women have been the leaders of and the inventors of feminism, right? Now, why we don't realize that when we look at the fact that 51% of white married women voted for Trump and 95% of African American women voted for Hillary. Hello? You know, it's perfectly clear. And there are reasons for that. If you are a white married woman who is dependent on the income and social identity of your husband, I'm not by any means trying to overgeneralize because a lot of women in that situation didn't vote for Trump, you know. Right. But it's more likely that you will be inhabited by an identity not your own and you will vote for that identity. This may seem like an extreme comparison, but it always reminds me of the great Harriet Tubman who said when complimented because she had freed thousands of slaves, she said, well, I could have freed thousands more if only they knew they were slaves. There's a reason we're going to put that woman on our money. (laughs) (laughs) So so that African-American women, because of the double discrimination, because there were not men's incomes to depend upon for just a myriad of reasons, have always been disproportionately the inventors of and the leadership of the women's movement. And that's what, what we, I think, mutually, Stacy and I got so mad finally yeah. that, that we decided to have this program. And have this conversation. Yeah, just because it seems obvious and yet it's not reflected in the way the women's movement is perceived. So as you look at these women through time, the last, since Harriet Tubman, what can all women who are willing to listen take from the experiences of these women and use in order to move things forward? Which women? African American women, black women. Well, what can I, what can. Okay, you can listen. And, and I mean, as we listen, one, we what need do we to listen hear? to each yeah. other. That way we discovered shared experiences, shared problems that we can work on together. Also, we're communal people anyway. We need to listen to each other's stories. And white women can be allies, and I think that's a great word, but I myself don't think so much of myself as an ally, as a self-interested person who doesn't want to have my world limited. I don't want to be limited in who I love and who I know and and who I learn from. So it seems to me in my enlightened self-interest 
to break down these barriers. And for my own selfishness and also in a larger sense for all women, you will never have equality for women as long as you have racism. Well, we will leave it there. Gloria Steinem, Stacy Tisdale, we are grateful to be here at Winning Plays. and We're um, grateful that you helped without even a hesitation sharing this message. Absolutely. So I appreciate that. Thank it's, you. It's an important one. Thanks. So we are back in the studio. I want to thank again Stacy Tisdale. Thank you, Gloria Steinem, for taking a few minutes to talk about women and money in the midst of your busy event. Kelly is here with me. I mean, you and I are, are not the same age. Let's just put it that way. No. What, do, what do you think? Of the conversation? Yeah. Fascinating and empowering, thought-provoking. And especially when she touched on what's happening with Planned Parenthood, just to hear where she took your first question totally for me, like reshaped how I've been looking at it. Mm -hmm. I was geeking out with you there. I had the opportunity to like be in her presence and it was really special. Yeah, pretty amazing. I'm, I'm glad that we were able to do that. Let's move on to your questions. I know we've got a bunch. What'd you pull today? We do. Our first question is from Sarah, who just graduated with her doctorate degree in audiology. She'll be working at a nonprofit hospital making $70,000 a year. She writes, I have racked up 170000 in federal student loans after eight years of undergrad and graduate school. I plan on doing the repayment plan of 10% of my income for the next 10 years with the hopes of public service student loan forgiveness. I will be contributing 6% to my 403B at the max employer contribution match. But the idea of committing 10 years to being in a hospital setting makes me nervous. What if I decide in five years that private practice is more for me? Then I'm five years behind in making larger payments towards paying off my student loans solo without public service loan forgiveness. I want to have a backup plan. Would contributing to a Roth IRA be smart? Maybe 10% of my income. Can you cash out a Roth IRA account to pay off federal student loans? I know I've heard you say you can pay for education from a Roth without penalty. Does this also pertain to existing student loans? Or would you simply just recommend paying off as much as I can ASAP on my own, given my apprehensions? I would do a little bit of a mix of all of those things. First of all, good for you for thinking so far in the future. A lot of doctors, from what I'm told, actually go this very route that you are describing. They start, they do a couple of years, a not-for-profit hospital. They realize private practice is much more lucrative. And at that time, the jump in their income is so substantial that they can make up the difference. But I love the idea of banking some money for this on the side so that you just have a cushion to take care of it. A Roth is a fine place to do that. And you can indeed pull out your contributions if you are using them for education. You won't be able to pull out the earnings on those contributions necessarily. You'll have to look at that at the time, but that's a fine place to rack up the money. You also could just put it in a savings account for a little while. My guess is that You'll know sooner rather than later whether doing 10 years in a not-for-profit hospital is going to be for you. And if you come around two years from now and you think, okay, I'm ready to do this, you won't be as far behind on the repayment calculator as you might have thought. And at that point, you can just make up some steam. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. 
Our next question is from The Booty. She writes, Hi, Jean. I love the podcast. My mother is a teacher in Texas and is five years away from being able to claim her pension. I am very worried for her because her pension will not cover all of her expenses and her Social Security will also be reduced from the government pension offset and the windfall elimination provision. She has not saved for retirement and is also paying on my brother's student loans since she is the co-signer. Number one, due to the complexity of the situation, would you suggest I find a financial planner to find the best way for her to start saving? And number two, I would like to remove my mother as the co-signer on my brother's private loan. I understand the only way to do this is to refinance the loan, but he does not have a stable job or good credit. Do you have any suggestions for how I might remove her as the co-signer or refinance the loan? <sighs> boy, oh boy. And that's a big sigh because this is a tough one. Um, and this is one of the reasons why we don't co-sign unless we absolutely have to. Here's what I would suggest. I'd suggest getting a financial planner in to meet perhaps with both your mother and your brother. I think at this point, your brother needs to understand how crucial it is to get your mother off of these loans. And perhaps hearing that from an outside third-party source of some authority will give him the push that he needs to do something. I mean, I say that very optimistically. Sometimes these things just don't work, but you're right. There's no other way to get her off of these loans. And by getting her off of these loans, you give her a chunk of money that she can then roll into savings. So I think that is the underlying solution. But I'm thinking you look for a financial planner who is familiar with the teacher's pension system, but who's also a compassionate sort who can act as much as a therapist, as a financial advisor. And believe me, this is something that financial advisors do all the time. I mean, half of their job is numbers and half of their job is hand-holding and emotions. So you just have to find the right person. But good luck. Good luck. Thank you for writing in. Thanks for the question. And finally, a question from Nancy, who is wondering, what is your opinion of using debt consolidation companies or debt management plans when you have a lot of credit card debt? I think debt management plans are often a very good way to go because they provide some structure. So, you know, they are not a free pass away from debt. When you sit down with a not-for-profit credit counseling service and you sign up for a debt management plan, essentially you're agreeing to have all of your credit card debt rolled into one monthly payment. You're agreeing to no longer use your credit cards. You're agreeing to have the interest rate reduced generally to about 6%. Usually these credit counselors also have the ability to get late fees and other over-limit fees waived, which can be great because sometimes people have a ton of them. But getting through the debt management process takes four or five years on average to come out the other side. And that's something that not a ton of people understand. There are other ways to go about it. If you can come up with lump sums and you don't care about your credit score, you can settle with your credit card companies. You can offer them a percentage of what you owe them and say, essentially, take it or leave it. And sometimes they'll take it and wipe the rest of the debt clear. But if what you're looking for is to just get back on track with a good history of repayment and you have the 
understanding that it is going to take years and you like the idea of this kind of structure, then I think they're really good. And I think you can trust one that you find through the National Foundation of Credit Counselors, nfcc.org. Thank you, Nancy. And let us know which one you end up going with if you end up going with one so we can then start using that as a suggestion. Absolutely. And uh, thanks, everybody, for your questions. Moving on to today's Thrive segment, the old adage goes that there are only so many hours in a day. But what if you could get some of them back? Carl Richards, the New York Times sketch guy, He's also been a guest on this show. He recently conducted an investigation to figure out where his time was going. It was kind of like tracking your spending, but instead of tracking dollars, he tracked minutes. He used a service called Rescue Time and some other services to track down how much time he was spending on different sites and different apps. And then he looked over the results at the end of the month. Here's the shocker. He found out he'd spent 45 hours and 38 minutes on things that he labeled unproductive. Yeah, he gave himself a hard time, but then he realized these were hours he could get back and reallocate to things that he actually cared about. So if you're thinking about following suit, start by downloading a time tracking service. Rescue Time is one, Timeful is another. Then just go about your month On the end of the month, the 30th or the 31st, sit down, maybe with a glass of wine, go over the results and create an action plan for your future. And think about, hey, if I had an extra one hour a day, just one, I mean, what would you do with that? Would you do yoga? Would you pick up running? Would you start meditating? I mean, would you read Would you learn a language? I mean, there's so many things. You could train a puppy. All the things we say, I wish I had time to do this, the world becomes your oyster. You could do it. Absolutely. So good idea, Carl. I'm a little scared to see how much time I'm sinking into (laughs) Candy Crush. No, seriously. How much time do you think? If you had to to make a guesstimate right now. I try to only do it when I'm in a place where I couldn't do anything else. Mm -hmm. But in reality, there are no places <laughs> like that. <laughs> I've seen you playing less since I first started working with you. Yeah. No, I'm not playing as much, but I hit level 1,000, and I felt really bad about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'm going to hit level 1,000, uh-huh. and then I'm just going to take it off my phone. Uh-huh. And then I noticed I was at like 1,006. And then you want to get to 2,000, and then I, there It's you all go. about the round numbers. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's a problem. But he's inspired me, as he has many times in the past, so we will see what happens there. Gloria Steinem also inspired us this week. We want to thank her and Stacey Tisdale for being on the show. Thank you for bringing us your questions. Coming up next week, we'll be talking with Anne Choquette, former editor of Seventeen Magazine, author of a terrific new book called The Big Life. We hope that you'll join us for that. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX, and we'll talk soon.